Section 9 of A Theological-Political Treatise by Baruch Benedict de Spinoza Translated by Robert Harvey Monroe Elvis This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Chapter 8 Of the Authorship of the Pentateuch and the Other Historical Books of the Old Testament In the former chapter we treated of the foundations and principles of scriptural knowledge and showed that it consists solely in a trustworthy history of the sacred writings such a history in spite of its indispensability the ancients neglected or at any rate whatever they may have written or handed down has perished in the lapse of time consequently the groundwork for such an investigation is to a great extent cut from under us this might be put up with if succeeding generations had confined themselves within the limit of truth and had handed down conscientiously what few particulars they had received or discovered without any addition from their own brains. As it is, the history of the Bible is not so much imperfect as untrustworthy. The foundations are not only too scanty for building upon, but are also unsound. It is part of my purpose to remedy these defects and to remove common theological prejudices. But I fear that I am attempting my task too late, for men have arrived at the pitch of not suffering contradiction but defending obstinately whatever they have adopted under the name of religion. So widely have these prejudices taken possession of men's minds that very few, comparatively speaking, will listen to reason. However, I will make the attempt and spare no effort, for there is no positive reason for despairing of success. In order to treat the subject methodically, I will begin with the received opinions concerning the true authors of the sacred books and in the first place speak of the author of the Pentateuch, which is almost universally supposed to have been Moses. The Pharisees are so firmly convinced of his identity that they account as a heretic anyone who differs from them on the subject. Wherefore, Aben Ezra, a man of enlightened intelligence and no small learning, who was the first, so far as I know, to treat of this opinion, dared not express his meaning openly, but confined himself to dark hints which I shall not scruple to elucidate thus throwing full light on the subject. The words of Aben Ezra, which occur in his commentary on Deuteronomy, are as follows. Beyond Jordan, etc., if so be that thou understandest the mystery of the twelve. Moreover, Moses wrote the law. The Canaanite was then in the land. It shall be revealed on the mount of God. Then also behold his bed, his iron bed, then shalt thou know the truth. In these few words he hints, and also shows that it was not Moses who wrote the Pentateuch, but someone who lived long after him, and further, that the book which Moses wrote was something different from any now extant. To prove this, I say, he draws attention to the facts. 1. That the preface to Deuteronomy could not have been written by Moses, inasmuch as he had never crossed the Jordan. 2. That the whole book of Moses was written at full length on the circumference of a single altar. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and Joshua chapter 8 verse 37, which altar, according to the rabbis, consisted of only twelve stones. Therefore the book of Moses must have been of far less extent than the Pentateuch. This is what our author means, I think, by the mystery of the twelve, unless he is referring to the twelve curses contained in the chapter of Deuteronomy above cited, which he thought could not have been contained in the law, because Moses bade the Levites read them after the recital of the law, and so bind the people to its observance. Or again, 
he may have had in his mind the last chapter of Deuteronomy, which treats of the death of Moses and which contains twelve verses. But there is no need to dwell further on these and similar conjectures. 3. That in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 9 the expression occurs, and Moses wrote the law, words that cannot be ascribed to Moses, but must be those of some other writer narrating the deeds and writings of Moses. 4. That in Genesis chapter 12 verse 6 the historian, after narrating that Abraham journeyed through the land of Canaan, adds, and the Canaanite was then in the land, thus clearly excluding the time at which he wrote. So that this passage must have been written after the death of Moses, when the Canaanites had been driven out, and no longer possessed the land. Aben Ezra, in his commentary on the passage, alludes to the difficulty as follows. And the Canaanite was then in the land. It appears that Canaan, the grandson of Noah, took from another the land which bears his name. If this be not the true meaning, there lurks some mystery in the passage, and let him who understands it keep silence. That is, if Canaan invaded those regions, the sense will be, the Canaanite was then in the land, in contradistinction to the time when it had been held by another. But if, as follows from Genesis chapter 10, Canaan was the first to inhabit the land, the text must mean to exclude the time present, that is the time at which it was written. Therefore it cannot be the work of Moses, in whose time the Canaanites still possessed those territories. This is the mystery concerning which silence is recommended. 5. That in Genesis chapter 22 verse 14, Mount Moriah is called the Mount of God, a name which it did not acquire till after the building of the temple. The choice of the mountain was not made in the time of Moses, for Moses does not point out any spot as chosen by God. On the contrary, he foretells that God will at some future time choose a spot to which his name will be given. 6. Lastly, that in Deuteronomy chapter 3, in the passage relating to Og, king of Bashan, these words are inserted. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabbath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it, after the cubit of a man. This parenthesis most plainly shows that its writer lived long after Moses, for this mode of speaking is only employed by one treating of things long past, and pointing to relics for the sake of gaining credence. Moreover, this bed was almost certainly first discovered by David, who conquered the city of Rabbath, Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 30. Again, the historian, a little further on, inserts after the words of Moses, Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the country of Argob into the coasts of Geshuri and Mahati, and called them after his own name, Bashan Havot Jair, unto this day. This passage, I say, is inserted to explain the words of Moses which preceded, and the rest of Gilead, and all Bashan, being the kingdom of Og, gave I unto half the tribe of Manasseh all the region of Argob, with all Bashan, which is called the land of the giants. The Hebrews, in the time of the writer, indisputably knew what territories belonged to the tribe of Judah, but did not know them under the name of the jurisdiction of Argob or the land of the giants. Therefore the writer is compelled to explain what these places were which were anciently so styled, and at the same time to point out why they were, at the time of his writing, known by the name of Jair, who was of the tribe of Manasseh, not of Judah. We have thus made clear the meaning of Aben Ezra, and also the passages of the Pentateuch, which he cites in proof of his contention. 
However, Aben Ezra does not call attention to every instance, or even the chief ones. There remain many of greater importance which may be cited. Namely, 1. That the writer of the books in question not only speaks of Moses in the third person, but also bears witness to many details concerning him. For instance, Moses talked with God. The Lord spoke with Moses face to face. Moses was the meekest of men. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3. Moses was wroth with the captains of the host. Moses, the man of God. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. There was never a prophet in Israel like unto Moses, etc. On the other hand, in Deuteronomy, where the law which Moses had expounded to the people and written is set forth, Moses speaks and declares what he has done in the first person. God spake with me. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 1, 17, etc. I prayed to the Lord, etc. Except at the end of the book, when the historian, after relating the words of Moses, begins again to speak in the third person, and to tell how Moses handed over the law, which he had expounded to the people in writing, again admonishing them, and further, how Moses ended his life. All these details, the manner of narration, the testimony, and the context of the whole story, lead to the plain conclusion that these books were written by another and not by Moses in person. 2. We must also remark that the history relates not only the manner of Moses' death and burial, and the thirty days of mourning of the Hebrews, but further compares him with all the prophets who came after him, and states that he surpassed them all. There was never a prophet in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Such testimony cannot have been given of Moses by himself, nor by any who immediately succeeded him, but it must come from someone who lived centuries afterwards, especially as the historian speaks of past times. There was never a prophet, etc. And of the place of burial, no one knows it to this day. 3. We must note that some places are not styled by the names they bore during Moses' lifetime, but by others which they obtained subsequently. For instance, Abraham is said to have pursued his enemies even unto Dan, a name not bestowed on the city, till long after the death of Joshua. Genesis chapter 14 verse 14. Judges chapter 18 verse 29. 4. The narrative is prolonged after the death of Moses, for in Exodus chapter 16 verse 34 we read that the children of Israel did eat manna forty years until they came to a land inhabited, until they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan. In other words, until the time alluded to in Joshua chapter 6 verse 12. So too in Genesis chapter 36 verse 31 it is stated, These are the kings that reigned in Edom before they reigned any king over the children of Israel. The historian doubtless here relates the king of Idumea before that territory was conquered by David and garrisoned, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 14. From what has been said, it is thus clearer than the sun at noonday that the Pentateuch was not written by Moses, but by someone who lived long after Moses. Let us now turn our attention to the books which Moses actually did write, and which are cited in the Pentateuch. Thus also shall we see that they were different from the Pentateuch. Firstly, it appears from Exodus chapter 17 verse 14 that Moses, by the command of God, wrote an account of the war against Amalek. The book in which he did so is not named in the chapter just quoted, but in Numbers chapter 21 verse 12, a book is referred to under the title of the wars of God, and doubtless this war against Amalek, and the castrametations said in Numbers chapter 33 verse 2 to have been written by Moses are therein described. 
We hear also in Exodus chapter 24, verse 4, of another book called the Book of the Covenant, which Moses read before the Israelites when they first made a covenant with God. But this book or this writing contained very little, namely the laws or commandments of God, which we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, to the end of chapter 24, and this no one will deny who reads the aforesaid chapter rationally and impartially. It is therefore stated that as soon as Moses had learned the feeling of the people on the subject of making a covenant with God, he immediately wrote down God's laws and utterances, and in the morning, after some ceremonies had been performed, read out the conditions of the covenant to an assembly of the whole people. When these had been gone through, and doubtless understood by all, the whole people gave their assent. Now, from the shortness of the time taken in its perusal, and also from its nature as a compact, this document evidently contained nothing more than that which we have just described. Further, it is clear that Moses explained all the laws which he had received in the fortieth year after the exodus from Egypt, also that he bound over the people a second time to observe them, and that finally he committed them to writing. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 5, chapter 29 verse 14, chapter 31 verse 9, in a book which contained these laws explained, and the new covenant, and this book was therefore called the book of the law of God, the same which was afterwards added to by Joshua when he set forth the fresh covenant with which he bound over the people and which he entered into with God. Joshua chapter 24 verses 25, 26. Now, as we have extant no book containing this covenant of Moses and also the covenant of Joshua, we must perforce conclude that it has perished, unless indeed we adopt the wild conjecture of the Chaldean paraphrased Jonathan and twist about the words of Scripture to our heart's content. This commentator, in the face of our present difficulty, preferred corrupting the sacred text to confessing his own ignorance. The passage in the book of Joshua, which runs, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, he changes into, And Joshua wrote these words and kept them with the book of the law of God. What is to be done with persons who will only see what pleases them? What is such a proceeding if it is not denying Scripture and inventing another Bible out of our own heads? We may therefore conclude that the book of the law of God which Moses wrote was not the Pentateuch, but something quite different, which the author of the Pentateuch duly inserted into his book. So much is abundantly plain, both from what I have said and from what I am about to add. For in the passage of Deuteronomy above quoted, where it is related that Moses wrote the book of the law, the historian adds that he handed it over to the priests and bade them read it out at a stated time to the whole people. This shows that the work was of much less length than the Pentateuch, inasmuch as it could be read through at one sitting, so as to be understood by all. Further, we must not omit to notice that out of all the books which Moses wrote, this one book of the Second Covenant and the Song, which latter he wrote afterwards so that all the people might learn it, was the only one which he caused to be religiously guarded and preserved. In the First Covenant he had only bound over those who were present, but in the Second Covenant he bound over all their descendants also. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 14 and therefore ordered this covenant with future ages to be religiously preserved, together with the song which was especially addressed to posterity. As then we have no proof that Moses wrote any book save this of the covenant, and as he committed no other to the care of posterity, and lastly, as there are many passages in the Pentateuch which Moses could not have written, it follows that the belief that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch is ungrounded 
and even irrational. Someone will perhaps ask whether Moses did not also write down other laws when they were first revealed to him. In other words, whether during the course of forty years he did not write down any of the laws which he promulgated, save only those few which I have stated to be contained in the book of the first covenant. To this I would answer, that although it seems reasonable to suppose that Moses wrote down the laws at the time when he wished to communicate them to the people, yet we are not warranted to take it as proved, for I have shown above that we must make no assertions in such matters which we do not gather from Scripture, or which do not flow as legitimate consequences from its fundamental principles. We must not accept whatever is reasonably probable. However, even reason in this case would not force such a conclusion upon us, for it may be that the assembly of elders wrote down the decrees of Moses and communicated them to the people, and the historian collected them and duly set them forth in his narrative of the life of Moses. So much for the five books of Moses. It is now time for us to turn to the other sacred writings. The book of Joshua may be proved not to be an autograph by reasons similar to those we have just employed, for it must be some other than Joshua who testifies that the fame of Joshua was spread over the whole world that he omitted nothing of what moses had taught joshua chapter 6 verse 27 chapter 8 last verse chapter 11 verse 15 that he grew old and summoned an assembly of the whole people and finally that he departed this life furthermore events are related which took place after joshua's death for instance that the israelites worshiped god after his death so long as there were any old men alive who remembered him and in chapter 16 verse 10 we read that ephraim and manasseh did not drive out the canaanites which dwell in gezer but the canaanite dwelt in the land of ephraim unto this day and was tributary to him this is the same statement as that in judges chapter 1 and the phrase unto this day shows that the writer was speaking of ancient times with these texts we may compare the last verse of chapter 15 concerning the sons of judah and also the history of caleb in the same chapter verse 14 Further, the building of an altar beyond Jordan by the two tribes and a half. Chapter 22, verse 10. The following ones seems to have taken place after the death of Joshua, for in the whole narrative his name is never mentioned. But the people alone held counsel as to waging war, sent out legates, waited for their return, and finally approved of their answer. Lastly, from chapter 10, verse 14, it is clear that the book was written many generations after the death of Joshua, for it bears witness, there was never any day like unto that day, either before or after, that the Lord hearkened to the voice of a man, etc. If, therefore, Joshua wrote any book at all, it was that which is quoted in the work now before us. Chapter 10, verse 13. With regard to the book of Judges, I suppose no rational person persuades himself that it was written by the actual Judges. For the conclusion of the whole history contained in chapter 2 clearly shows that it is all the work of a single historian. Further, inasmuch as the writer frequently tells us that there was then no king in Israel, it is evident that the book was written after the establishment of the monarchy. The books of Samuel need not detain us long, inasmuch as the narrative in them is continued long after Samuel's death, but I should like to draw attention to the fact that it was written many generations after Samuel's death. For in Book 1, Chapter 9, Verse 9, the historian remarks in a parenthesis, Before time in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer. For he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer. 
Lastly, the book of Kings, as we gather from internal evidence, was compiled from the books of King Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 41 from the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 19-29, and the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. We may, therefore, conclude that all the books we have considered hitherto are compilations, and that the events therein are recorded as having happened in old time. Now, if we turn our attention to the connection and argument of all these books, we shall easily see that they were written by a single historian, who wished to relate the antiquities of the Jews from their first beginning down to the first destruction of the city. The way in which the several books are connected one with the other is alone enough to show us that they form the narrative of one and the same writer. For as soon as he has related the life of Moses, the historian thus passes on to the story of Joshua. And it came to pass after that Moses, the servant of the Lord, was dead, that God spake unto Joshua, etc. So in the same way, after the death of Joshua was concluded, he passes with identically the same transition and connection to the history of the judges. And it came to pass after that Joshua was dead, that the children of Israel sought from God, etc. To the book of Judges he adds the story of Ruth, as a sort of appendix in these words. Now it came to pass in the days that the judges ruled, that there was a famine in the land. The first book of Samuel is introduced with a similar phrase, and so is the second book of Samuel. Then, before the history of David is concluded, the historian passes in the same way to the first book of Kings, and after David's death to the second book of Kings. The putting together and the order of the narratives show that they are all the work of one man, writing with a definite aim. For the historian begins with relating the first origin of the Hebrew nation, and then sets forth in order the times and the occasions in which Moses put forth his laws and made his predictions. He then proceeds to relate how the Israelites invaded the promised land in accordance with Moses' prophecy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, and how, when the land was subdued, they turned their backs on their laws and thereby incurred many misfortune, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 16, 17. He tells how they wished to elect rulers and how, according as these rulers observed the law, the people flourished or suffered, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36. Finally, how destruction came upon the nation, even as Moses had foretold. In regard to other matters which do not serve to confirm the law, the writer either passes over them in silence or refers the reader to other books for information. All that is set down in the books we have conduces to the sole object of setting forth the words and laws of Moses and proving them by subsequent events. When we put together these three considerations, namely the unity of the subject of all the books, the connection between them, and the fact that they are compilations made many generations after the events they relate had taken place, we come to the conclusion, as I have just stated, that they are all the work of a single historian. Who this historian was, it is not easy to show. But I suspect that he was Ezra, and there are several strong reasons for adopting this hypothesis. The historian, whom we already know to be but one individual, brings this history down to the liberation of Jehoiakim, and adds that he himself sat at the king's table all his life, that is, at the table either of Jehoiakim or of the son of Nebuchadnezzar, for the sense of the passage is ambiguous. Hence it follows that he did not live before the time of Ezra. But scripture does not testify of any except of Ezra, Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, that he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to set it forth, and further, that he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses. Therefore I cannot find any one save Ezra 
to whom to attribute the sacred books. Further, from this testimony concerning Ezra, we see that he prepared his heart not only to seek the law of the Lord, but also to set it forth. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8 we read that they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. As then in Deuteronomy we find not only the book of the law of Moses or the greater part of it, but also many things inserted for its better explanation. I conjecture that this Deuteronomy is the book of the law of God, written, set forth, and explained by Ezra, which is referred to in the text above quoted. Two examples of the way matters were inserted parenthetically in the text of Deuteronomy, with a view to its fuller explanation, we have already given in speaking of Aben Ezra's opinion. Many others are found in the course of the work. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 12, the Horims dwelt also in Sair before time, but the children of Esau succeeded them, when they had destroyed them from before them, and dwelt in their stead, as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave unto them. This explains verses 3 and 4 of the same chapter, where it is stated that Mount Sair, which had come to the children of Esau for a possession, did not fall into their hands uninhabited, but that they invaded it and turned out and destroyed the Horims who formerly dwelt therein, even as the children of Israel had done unto the Canaanites after the death of Moses. So also, verses 6, 7, 8, 9 of the 10th chapter are inserted parenthetically among the words of Moses. Everyone must see that verse 8 which begins, At that time the Lord separated the tribe of Levi, necessarily refers to verse 5, and not to the death of Aaron, which is only mentioned here by Ezra, because Moses, in telling of the golden calf worshipped by the people, stated that he had prayed for Aaron. He then explains that at the time at which Moses spoke, God had chosen for himself the tribe of Levi in order that he may point out the reason for their election, and for the fact of their not sharing in the inheritance. After the digression, he resumes the thread of Moses' speech. To these parentheses we must add the preface to the book, and all the passages in which Moses is spoken of in the third person, besides many which we cannot now distinguish, though doubtless they would have been plainly recognized by the writer's contemporaries. If I say we were in possession of the book of the law as Moses wrote it, I do not doubt that we should find a great difference in the words of the precepts, the order in which they are given, and the reason by which they are supported. A comparison of the Decalogue in Deuteronomy with the Decalogue in Exodus, where its history is explicitly set forth, will be sufficient to show us a wide discrepancy in all these three particulars, for the fourth commandment is given not only in a different form, but at much greater length, while the reason for its observance differs wholly from that stated in Exodus. Again, the order in which the tenth commandment is explained differs in the two versions. I think that the differences here as elsewhere are the work of Ezra, who explained the law of God to his contemporaries, and who wrote this book of the law of God before anything else. This I gather from the fact that it contains the laws of the country, of which the people stood in most need, and also because it is not joined to the book which precedes it by any connecting phrase, but begins with the independent statement, These are the words of Moses. After this task was completed, I think Ezra set himself to give a complete account of the history of the Hebrew nation, from the creation of the world to the entire destruction of the city, and in this account he inserted the book of Deuteronomy, and, possibly, he called the first five books by the name of Moses, 
because his life is chiefly contained therein, and forms their principal subject. For the same reason he called the sixth Joshua, the seventh Judges, the eighth Ruth, the ninth and perhaps the tenth Samuel, and lastly the eleventh and twelfth Kings. Whether Ezra put the finishing touches to this work and finished it as he intended, we will discuss in the next chapter. End of section 9, read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.